houses and money, but we lived in Section 8 housing, uh, which means we were poor enough that the federal government paid our rent. I never experienced food uh, scarcity because my family had access to food pantries and food stamps. It was comfortable when comparing my life to developing world poverty standards. Um, that's not to say it was easy. Just to give you a flavor, I, I don't remember a time where my mom ever put more than $10 worth of gas in our tank. I do remember breaking down a couple different times uh, because we ran out of gas. And my mom had no money and we had to rely on the kindness of passerbys to help us out. Now, I chose to go to college, uh, which for many people is a pathway out of poverty. Uh, but there's also something called the graduation gap. Um, I wanna share some statistics with you that surprised me. Um, according to my research, only 11% of low-income first-generation college students who enroll in college finish after six years. One in 10 that start college actually finish, and that was me. Um, students with a higher income are five times more likely to finish college. And so even those with uh, high, relatively high GPAs, um, someone in my income bracket, uh, it's only 20, we're only 21% likely to finish college. Those with higher income are in the same uh, GPA bracket are 77% likely to graduate. So only one in five high achieving students from low income brackets who start college actually finish it. Uh, and quitting school for the other four out of five means a, their likelihood of, of not escaping the poverty cycle drops, or their, their likelihood of escaping drops from 41% to 14%. So those stats are pretty bleak. Um, and they call that the graduation gap. Some of the reasons for these trends include an inability to navigate the complex financial aid situation at school, complex family situations, and the need to work on top of studying. And these were all true for me. I, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about financial aid. So, so Gordon College, where I did my undergrad, it is not an inexpensive school. I had a partial scholarship, but I had to borrow the rest uh, in loans. So simple enough, you might think, but I was in the student aid office a week, uh, once a week, most of the weeks I was in college, uh, trying to figure it all out. Everyone in my family tried and no one was actually able to co-sign a Parent PLUS loan for me. Bye kids, <laughs> I think we forgot to dismiss them. Um, so everyone in my family tried and no one could actually uh, co-sign a Parent PLUS loan for me. Um, my federal loans were maxed out. I, I even asked people in my church, um, and the one person who did offer to, to help me get a private loan was, was denied co-signing ability. So three out of the four years, I was given an ultimatum from college that if I didn't pay money owed by a certain date, then I would have to leave. Um, and by God's grace, something came through every time. At a most critical time in my junior year, actually a friend's mom offered to lend me a personal loan without any interest. Um, this was a semester where I took uh, a necessary course that uh, had some unanticipated fees that were greater than tuition. I mean, did you know this? In many cases, dropping out of college comes down to as little as $500 and not having $500. I'll also, I'll also share that during seminary for me, in one year, I went through a string of five or six cars that were on their last leg because uh, with my work, I could only afford really cheap cars. 
um, I was at one point, um, I, was, I was burning myself out just trying to get by. Um, I had just bought a minivan. Yes, I said a minivan. You know, like all the cool kids had in seminary, a, mi a minivan. The, the head gasket went on my 15th day of ownership. So that's one day after the lemon law would have afforded me a full refund. And now it was basically worthless. Um, actually, at this time, a seminary professor who knew what was going on had a conversation with his wife. They decided they were in a position to buy a new car. And so they sold me their car um, with, with a, a promise to just pay them $50 a month. Can you believe that $50 a month without interest? That was five years ago, and it's still the car I drive today. It's the car we drove here to, to church. Um, according to the statistics, I have been unusually blessed to find myself gainfully employed, having broken the cycle of poverty. But my life is marked with help along the way from others. During college and seminary, people showed me unusual kindness and generosity. Um, even when loan applications got denied, just think about that. Somebody was willing to take a risk and a chance for me. They were putting their credit on the line. Um, how I think about it is people entered into situations where they had nothing to gain in order to help me continue to push forward to graduate school. I think my life has been marked by the confluence of God's grace shown by so many people. I don't know if today, I, I don't know if today you find yourself in any of those statistics I mentioned. I imagine there are a few of us here. Um, but what's so important for all of us is to find ourselves in God's story when we're thinking about our money. What's money for? There are so many different ways of framing up this question. I can say for me, it's the generosity of people that made a difference in my life. I mean, the person who did give me that personal loan, when I tried to pay it back to them, they told me to pay it forward, to, to show that same kindness to someone else. This is quiet, glory-evading generosity that is not born out of the story of our culture that tells us that money is scarce and it's all about winning but is born out of God's story that he tells us about money, where he is the provider and we're dependent. He calls us to be grateful and lean on him for our daily bread. He calls us to share. He calls us to a life of simplicity where we use our means to bless others. So in our passage today, Nehemiah answers this question about what money is for through his leadership in a time of socioeconomic crisis. His justice-driven initiative and his sacrificial generosity show us that money is the servant of the creation mandate to steward the earth. Money is to help us be good stewards. So we shift our focus from this story, from building wall, the building of the wall, the, that project that Nehemiah is focusing on, to this the day-to-day -day hardship of those returning from exile. So, so Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is the governor, there's actually a shortage of food in the land. And you see Jewish people, they're, they're selling their homes, they're selling off their land. They're selling their vineyards just so they can get food. So they're, they're trading in something that's renewable for something that's only a one time of one-time use. You see predatory lending, Jews borrowing with interest just to pay the Persian taxes for this year and not even for next year. I mean, what, what, what sort of situation are they going to be in next year? They're, they're sort of getting themselves into a worse situation with each of these financial decisions. 
see people selling their children into slavery, um, the slavery to people they'd sold their fields to. They say this in verse five, we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So that's, here's how the economy works in that time. Crops and, and the produce, they're the basis of economy in an agrarian culture. So when famine strikes, the economy crashes, but there's unrelenting Persian taxes on the Jews. It, it becomes impossible to pay these. Their situation, I think of it as very hunger games. Um, Persia being the capital, demanding to take the share of, of the already pitiful harvest from the, the districts, and the districts are left in scarcity, even more scarcity. It's, it's even more shocking when we learn that the ones doing the predatory lending aren't, aren't the Persians, they're not the neighbors, but they're actually the fellow Jews. So here's where Nehemiah shows up. Um, he, and, and this is where he shows us that escaping poverty, averting socioeconomic crisis, it requires a shared vision of justice. Nehemiah, this Jewish governor, we learn in verse six that he listened. He heard the cries of the people in verses one to five, all of those complaints. He said, when I heard these things, I was angry. I was angry. Nehemiah listens and his blood boils. That's what you do when you're a good leader. You feel the pain of your people. He thinks about it, and then he holds a meeting to deal with the corruption. He finger points all of the nobles, the officials, those with Persian salaries and pensions. In verse eight, he accuses those with means of predatory lending and engaging in slave trade. The reason that Nehemiah is angry is because both charging interest and engaging in slave trade beyond short-term debt servitude, it goes beyond the law of Moses, the, the law that they had been given. Nehemiah seems to call for uh, both the ending of, of this, this sketchy money sort of interest practices. And he actually calls for an unusual thing, an irregular year of Jubilee. So the law of Moses made provision in, in regular intervals for, for times of, of release and return of property. Um, so according to Leviticus 25, every 50th year, there was something called a Jubilee year. So this occurred on the day of atonement the day when there was corporate confession of sins, a symbolic transfer of sins from, from the people to a scapegoat, and the people had a fresh start. The year of Jubilee was, was that same atonement, but in socioeconomic terms. It's, it's a fresh start. It's debts forgiven. Um, so according to the law, you could temporarily sell your land, but during Jubilee, everything reverts back to the original owners. Can you imagine that in our economy, in our, in our world? Um, everything reverting back to the original owners every 50 years. So those who uh, sold themselves as slaves because they were compelled to do it, actually they re regained their liberty every 50 years. It was a short term or it wasn't a lifelong slavery. Uh, and it wasn't passed down from generation to generation. So in, in our narrative, Nehemiah calls for the canceling of interests. He calls for public forgiveness of debts in this jubilee-like return of property. So I, I wonder what's his answer to socioeconomic crisis? I, I, it sounds like it's obedience to the law and a shared vision of justice that goes beyond the demands of the law. The nobles and the officials, these lenders, the politicians, they agree and do what Nehemiah says in this story. So he makes them take an oath and he does add a little fear of the Lord to the, the equation. It appears to be a really solemn, worshipful event. In this chapter, Nehemiah, then he shifts 
his perspective to, to, to reflective. He's reflecting. It's a retrospective voice. He, he shows what servant leadership looks like. In verse 14, he says that over the 12 years he was governor, he never once ate the food allotted to the governor. So earlier governors taxed the people for their food. Um, and, and, and actually, it sounds like it was about a pound of silver every day that the governor would get through taxes for his own food. But Nehemiah says he didn't do this. In fact, he paid for his own food to feed 150 officials, plus a lot of more people that came around the table. Um, he was also a leader devoted to the task of building the wall around Jerusalem. He didn't acquire any land. He didn't diversify his portfolio and, and bring in multiple streams of income. He was focused on the task at hand, single-minded, with his hands dirty. And why? He says he did this out of the fear of God in verse 15. This is sacrificial generosity with an expression of servant leadership. Um, you see leaders like Nehemiah, they would take a pay cut if their employees are struggling to put food on their table. People like Nehemiah, when, when their employees call out sick, they jump into the trenches and help balance the load. And why is this? It's, it's because people aren't a means to an end. Um, even those who can't help you get anywhere, they're worthy of dignity. They're worthy of your time. They're worthy of your help. I think difficult economic times actually show people's true color. Um, Nehemiah's call for economic atonement and his own life, leading with his own life, they come from this deep care uh, for those that don't add a, a thing to the economic pie. Uh, if you've heard of the book Stone Soup, they are, these are the people that aren't bringing anything to the Stone Soup, but Nehemiah is saying they should get soup anyway. I think his political agenda is to bring God's justice down to earth because that's the story he lives in. It isn't about fame or fortune or power for him. It is about speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So that's from the Proverbs uh, passage that we preached earlier this year. Speaking up and judging fairly, defending the rights of the poor and the needy. Nehemiah is a politician who embodies God's heart for those in need, and he leads with his own life. Um, so I would say Nehemiah's life, his life itself is the answer to the question of what is money for? What is money for? Well, look at Nehemiah's life and you get a sense of what money is for. Justice-driven action, sacrificial generosity. And I wonder what those examples have to teach us. Um, what, is the, what does Nehemiah's example have to teach us? Um, through his leadership, um, we see that money is the means and not the end. Money helps us to live our callings. It helps us fulfill the creation mandate to exist in community and life together. So during Presbytery, um, just, just a couple weeks ago, I went into a breakout session on economic justice from someone uh, who's part of the Boston Faith and Justice Network. So, so they introduced us to an eight-week uh, small group course that's called Lazarus at the Gate. So that reference, Lazarus at the Gate, is about a parable Jesus told about two people. There's a, a rich man who's unnamed, and then there's a poor man who sits at, at, at his gate uh, during his life and, and after his life as well. And, it, and, and the person we're, we're showing attention to is Lazarus, so the poor man. Um, I could say a lot about the, the course, um, but I think that actually it asks for some really unusual things, which I'll mention. So it asks for everyone who participates in the course to show their budget. 
to one another. It asks everyone to, to be committed to lifestyle changes and living more simply. It asks everyone at the end of the eight weeks to actually donate what they can towards some cause that is really uh, close to the heart of what the group uh, cares about it in some way to alleviate an aspect of global poverty um, or to, uh, to make it better at least. So I'd, so the, the, the curriculum promotes four commitments. So, so living gratefully, living justly, living simply, and living generously. Um, I, one of the most compelling anecdotes uh, was a story by, told by Mother Teresa. So this is what Mother Teresa says. She says, not long ago, a very wealthy Hindu lady came to see me. She sat down and told me, I would like to share in your work. In India, more and more people like her are offering help. So I said, this is fine. The woman had a weakness that she confessed to me. She said, I love elegant saris. So those, those Indian dresses, she said. Um, indeed, she had on a very expensive sari that probably cost around 800 rupees. Mine only cost eight rupees. Hers cost 100 times what mine cost. So it, it, it occurred to me to say, I would start with the saris. The next time you go and buy one, instead of paying 800 rupees, buy one that costs 500. Then with those extra 300 rupees, buy saris for the poor. The woman now wears 100 rupee saris. And that is because I've asked her not to buy cheaper ones. Because that was something that she cared about, is the beauty of the, the fine clothes. She confessed to me that this has changed her life. She now knows what it means to share. That, that woman assured me that she received more than what she was given, or that what she has given. So she received more in the giving than she has given. I think that that, that curriculum, that those four commitments, they really embody Nehemiah's answer to that question of what money's for, living gratefully, justly, simply, and generously. I think that's possible for everybody. I admit we live in a world with, with many mixed messages around money. Young people are compelled to, to start saving for retirement, for a down payment of a house, for an emergency fund, for a family. Um, from my experience, however, I mean, even though you save, saving can flow out of a grateful, just, simple, and generous life, a life that's marked by trust and dependence, or saving can flow out of the anxiety of our age where there's never enough. And the, the difference isn't, whether you're saving or not, the difference is the story you're living in. Or they, um, it all depends on what money's for, the story you're living in. Um, last year, Lissy started reading a book called A Year Without a Purchase. Can you, can you imagine that, A Year Without a Purchase? Um, and so we, we actually tried the principles in the book for a couple of months. And I think the biggest lesson for me was that consuming things felt necessary because of some inner hunger to, to acquire. Um, consuming feels necessary, but actually there's a lot of things that can simply either be repaired rather than replaced or done without entirely. We did this um, in conjunction with a decluttering guide by, by the author Marie Kondo, who's, who's, her philosophy is grounded in the idea that gratitude rather than things is the basis of joy. So if you want a joyful life, I mean, it's not about getting more things. It's about being grateful for what you have. And it's amazing in that process uh, how much stuff there was in our tiny little apartment that was just stuffed away that we'd forgotten about. So I don't know where you are today, 
Um, I would say for those of you that don't have a budget, I'd encourage you to do this as an act of faithfulness so that you can be more intentional in your relationship with money and your resources. For those of you that are frozen in the question of what responsible giving looks like in this, this world of toxic charity, I would encourage you to start researching organizations that are doing good work. I dug up an article called uh, Cost-Efficient Compassion. Economists rate the impact of 10 popular strategies for helping the poor. So the, their list included, I'll just name a couple, causes like getting clean water to rural villages, providing medicine to children with internal worms, providing mosquito nets, funding reparative surgeries, sponsoring a child, and, and other things like drinking fair trade coffee. Um, we can't give equally to everything. Um, and so we need the discernment of the Holy Spirit. We need guidance to know how to give and where to give, where to show our generosity. I mean, surely I, I think about it, my seminary professor only had the ability to sell one student his car. But I think it because God was working and, and, and he was praying and we had a relationship, um, he actually, yeah, God, God used that person to meet a real need in my life. Um, I would say be encouraged that little things make a difference. Um, I was really inspired by the justice-driven justice, uh, the justice initiative um, that many of my friends took, um, deciding that they didn't need their stimulus check, and so they did something else with it. And I'm inspired by my mom as well, who has always tithed and has always sponsored a child through World Vision, despite never having an abundance herself. I would call that sacrificial generosity. So my question for you, is God challenging or inspiring you to, to look at your relationship with money this morning, to live more gratefully, justly, simply, and generously? What story are you living in when it comes to your finances? Um, in the horizon of, this coming, of the coming kingdom, when Jesus returns, living in humble dependence will be easy, as easy as breathing air. But for now, in our now world, we have to intentionally mark for ourselves these short-term hope horizons, goals to help us grow in our faithfulness. I want you to consider how this community and this world might be different if people were committed to seeing their money within God's story. And that's what I want to leave you with as we seek to live more generously, gratefully, justly, and simply. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you that you are providing for us. You know the number of hairs on our head. You know, um, you know what we need. I thank you that there is not a, a moment that goes by that we are not in your consciousness. You have not forgotten about us. As Nehemiah prayed, rem remember me, Lord. Lord, the surest sign of your remembering of us is, is Jesus coming for us and giving us what we truly needed. I pray today that you would help uh, release the grip of, mo of money on our hearts um, to free us to, to serve you with our resources, and to bring your kingdom into the North Shore and the wider world. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.